welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sundlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group, both at the University of Sheffield. In 2015, a large number of refugees came to Europe in what has uh, somewhat controversially come to be referred to as the European refugee crisis. Now, however, some of the focus has shifted away from the immediate crisis towards questions of integration of those who came. How will they, for example, fare the labour market? And uh, again, a bit more controversially, what sort of attitudes and values may they have? So who were these people who came? Well, one of the countries hosting many of the refugees in 2015 is Austria. And a team of researchers there spent some time in 2015 interviewing over 500 of those who came asking them questions such as their educational background, their attitudes and values. Judith Kohlenberger, who's a researcher at the Wittgenstein Centre for Demography and Global Human Capital at the University of Vienna, will join us to tell us about what they found in this research. So I started by asking her to outline the project and what they did and what they were hoping to find. The project that uh, I have been working on in the last for the last two years, and I'm still working on, is uh, called Displaced Persons in Austria Survey, Insurance Depots. And uh, this is a study um, that has its origin really in the early fall of 2015. So back in the time when the topic of forced migration, especially from Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan, became very prominent in Europe and also uh, in my home country in Austria, where the study is situated. Um, and back then, everyone, both politicians, but also civil society and the media, of course, um, everyone was very much focused on how many migrants are coming. And the focus was very much on counting heads, so to say. And um, my colleagues and I, we sort of ask ourselves also not only, you know, how many are coming, but who is actually coming? And we said we, we want to shift the focus a bit from counting heads to looking at what's in these heads. And that was sort of the um, saying that we uh, tended to use. Um, and the idea was really um, to, to look at the human capital of forced migrants. Um, so what are their educational levels and what are their professional qualifications that people bring to this country, right? Because, I mean, um, despite all the hardships that people experience um, on their journey um, to safety in Europe, um, they are more than just victims who need our support. Um, first and foremost, but who will also contribute to this country. Um, and this will especially be important for later um, integration and participation efforts. So the, the, the focus of the study was very firmly placed on this human capital aspect. And it's a second um, part of our study. And this was, again, very much owing to the public debate at that time, which pops up time and again, especially in my country, I think, um, was sort of attitudes and values of forced migrants, um, forced migrants who, to a largest part, uh, are from Muslim countries, and where there are a lot of stereotypes around this topic of, you know, what attitudes that I have on democracy, on gender equality, on religion and so on. And what we also wanted to do with collecting data on this, first of all, was to counter a clear lack of data on um, refugees and asylum seekers. Um, official institutions mainly collect data on very basic dimensions nationality, gender and age, but nothing beyond that. Um, and this is, of course, very scarce and you can hardly work with that uh, when you intend to inform policy. 
um, and also inform sort of political decision making in the public dialogue um, when it's about, you know, how can we help um, forced migrants coming to our countries, what services uh, do they need, but also um, what will they eventually be able to contribute to our society, which I think is important also to, to shift the discourse on migration maybe into a more positive um, way. Um, yeah, and uh, what we did was then in a very, very rapid field phase, and when I think back to this, I'm still amazed at how we did that, <laughs> but we started working on this in, in early October, I think, um, and we had a very rapid field phase in November and December 2015, I think it took us three to four weeks, and we did interviews um, in seven emergency accommodations in Vienna, most of them were NGO-run, um, so run by, um, I don't know, Red Cross, for instance, they had very, very big accommodations at, at that time, because between um, September and December 2015, um, especially Austria and Germany were, of course, experiencing large inflows of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and we uh, did the interviews as a sort of a personal interviews um, that were assisted with touchscreen tablets. And we had a questionnaire in English, but also in Arabic and Farsi. And it was also important that the persons that we asked, um, they did not have to read or write. This is very important in order not to have an educational bias in there. Uh, and in addition to the these uh, language translations, um, we also had um, on-site interpreters with us uh, who could interpret into Pashto and Kurdish. So we we're really trying to make sure that every respondent was able to do the interview in their native language. And as a, as a sort of third pillar here, um, we also worked with so-called bicultural aids. So people who had a refugee background themselves, but who had already been in Austria for a longer period of time, and could sort of do, in addition to language translation, do sort of cultural translation here. And I think that's very important um, when doing social service uh, with uh, refugees and asylum seekers. So altogether, by this sort of methods, a method we um, interviewed um, 515 asylum seekers and refugees from both sexes and from different ages, and they were mostly from Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And we also asked those respondents about um, the educational levels, qualifications, and so on um, of their spouses and their children. So, all, and this is so-called proxy information, as we call it um, in social service. And so, altogether, we um, have information about roughly 1,400. Uh, People and the main um, sort of items or questions that they were asked, as I already said, it's, it was focused very much on human capital, professional qualifications, their previous work experience, the educational levels, um, but also family and marital status, um, but their origins, the costs of flight and their journey to safety in Europe, um, their attitudes and their values, and their future plans in the new country. And what was also very nice to see was um, uh, in our team of altogether 10 researchers, we also had a Syrian demographer working with us, Zakaria Salak, who was the director of the Statistical Technical Institute in Damascus. Um, and that was, of course, very important for us because the rest of the researchers were mainly with sort of Western backgrounds, like myself. Um, and it was really nice to see that this is also uh, sort of already integration in practice, so to say, mm -hmm. uh, because we immensely benefited from his insight, of course, not only the language, but also, you know, he knew how to access, let's say, Syrian census data. 
Um, so that was very valuable. And actually, uh, Zakaria, um, he just returned to his hometown Damascus several weeks ago and resumed the position of the director of the Statistical Institute. So it's interesting to see that there is sort of a return migration also happening of highly qualified and educated people. Mm. Uh, it's really interesting your study and obviously um, kind of response to a lot of questions that people had especially during the refugee crisis when people were uh, were kind of wondering who was coming as well I think um, uh, but just before we go into that I just had a, a question relating to the Austrian situation so I think in your study you mean I think it was like 80% or something like that they interviewed who were men um, and then you asked them about their families as well um, so I was just wondering from on a sort of immigration point of view in Austria, how easy it will be for them to actually reunite with their families in Austria? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think something that will become more and more important in the future. So indeed, as you already mentioned correctly, we ask respondents about their family members, nuclear family members, so spouses and children. Um, and I can give you some very broad numbers just to put that into perspective. So we had about 55% of married men and 17% of married women um, who had a partner um, that was still living abroad. Uh, and about 60% of the men um, and 15% of the women that we interviewed had children still abroad. So as you said, um, there is quite a potential for family reunification of course, um, and something that, that will become more and more important, I think, in the future as well. Um, what I think this also has to do with is sort of um, the fact that um, we know that due to the very high costs of flight or of the journey to safety in Europe, um, it's very often only one family member per family um, who can actually make this journey. So what we also did is we asked them, uh, we asked respondents about the, the costs of flight, mm -hmm. how much did pay for their journey, um, which is something that I, I haven't come across other studies, um, and this is really something where I think more, more research is needed, it's a very interesting topic, sort of the economic hardships of, of a flight, um, of fleeing from a country. And it's interesting to see that on average respondents pay, paid between 2,000 to 4,000 US dollars, um, and on average their journey lasted 17 days. And uh, we know that... Um, 2,000 US dollars very roughly corresponds to an average annual income in Syria before the crisis. And of course, as soon as the conflict really started to, uh, to blow up, um, the, what happens very quickly is huge inflation and sort of the exchange rates drop dramatically. So this means that um, 2,000 US dollars would actually mm. mean a much higher financial burden for a family in real terms. And this explains, I think, to a large degree, why, yes, indeed, um, a very high percentage of asylum seekers in Europe are male, in indeed, um, because it's very often only one person per family uh, who can afford to not only make this very dangerous, but also financially a very expensive journey to Europe in the hope of being able to reunite with his or her uh, family members later um, through sort of resettlement programs or reunification programs. And what we found, uh, we sort of tried to calculate the so-called family reunification potential. So we were asking ourselves, okay, how many people can be expected, um, how many family members can we expect to join uh, those who already are in the country who already came to Austria. And what we found is that per 100 forced migrants who already were in Austria at the time of our survey, 38 additional family 
members can formally be considered for family reunification. And of these 38 family members, we have 25 um, who are children, underage of course, because the restrictions say that children have to be under 18. Above 18, they are not um, cannot be legally considered for family reunification. And uh, 14 spouses, so um, husband or wives. Um, and this is of course an interesting figure, I think, because at the very beginning of the refugee crisis, I remember that Austrian media brought very wild numbers saying that per asylum seeker, five additional um, family members can be expected to join him or her in Austria. This is not something that our study corroborated. So is that um, so? Is that thirty eight people who will be eligible, or is it thirty eight people who you'd like expect be applying? Who would be eligible? We we didn't really ask them about their intentions. Okay. Um, so it's really only asking about their family structure, their family context, and okay. from that included how many people would. So this is really the maximum. Yeah. Rate. So it's really the maximum. It's probably likely maximum. to be lower than yeah. So did the people, I mean, given the high price that you just mentioned of getting to um, to Europe or to Austria in this case, um, did people you speak to talk about being in debt or um, sort of trying to, having to work the money, you know, earn the money back in Austria or, or were they talking at all about that? We specifically did not ask no. about that. Yeah. So, Questions were very sensitive, of course, and most people who we interviewed had only been in the country for a very short time, yeah. usually a few weeks. So we did also ask them about very broadly the, the route to safety that they took, so mm. whether driving by Turkey or the Mediterranean and so on, but very broadly, because people, people are very reluctant to talk about their journey. And this is something also that we received. We got very positive feedback on the survey, I think mainly because it put the focus on you know, the positive aspects of a person's personality, really, what they are bringing to the table. And they felt very happy to be able to talk about, you know, what kind of person they were back in their home countries, you know, um, what they were working as, what their job was, what their education is. Um, and this is, I think, very important, especially in this situation where, I mean, the journey to Europe um, is very recent and um, accommodation in these emergency quarters might not always be optimum. So um, it was, I think, a good experience for them to be able to talk about the more positive aspects of their previous life. What's also interesting to say about family reunification schemes um, on a European level is that at the moment, especially um, in um, Austria, we have a lot of debate on... Um, the, the routes um, that people use to come to Europe. Um, and you know that, um, especially for Austria and Germany, it was the West Balkans that were sort of the main um, journey route that people chose to arrive. Um, and this was closed, and now people are talking about Mediterranean and arriving via sea. And of course, there's a huge controversy also about the role of NGOs as potential um, pull factors for people um, coming here. And, and what I find interesting is that um, of course, we, we also, on the other hand, have this uh, very strong situation here that family reunification schemes, and I think this is true for many European countries, get stricter and stricter. Mm. And what I find, this is um, sort of interesting to see, is that uh, we, we now talked about why 
most uh, asylum seekers in Europe are male and why it's mo mostly only one person per family who arrives here. Um, so, the, so the idea is of course that when um, the husband of a family arrives, um, he would like to bring his family um, to safety via reunification schemes. Um, and if we make it harder for people to access these schemes and to take part in them, then of course um, people will again, um, and these are the most vulnerable then, because women and children were the ones who were mainly left behind, um, they, they will have to resort to illegal routes and uh, to uh, potentially very dangerous routes like via the Mediterranean. Um, so I think uh, one way to, to make sure that less people arrive uh, via the Mediterranean or via other illegal routes would be to invest and to actually increase um, these uh, family reunification schemes rather than make them stricter. Because I think that the reunification schemes especially mainly benefit the most vulnerable, namely women and children. So the next thing that I was going to ask you about is that, uh, so you already mentioned that you asked uh, people about the level of education. And I suppose as expected, because um, uh, because it was so expensive to, to get to Europe, you do find that people um, were generally sort of more highly educated than uh, than the average person in there, if they were Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, in a way, it's interesting because you said that, you know, you make this sort of, sort of counter-prejudice, but and, and some of the figures that you've you've just mentioned, like the, the family reunification uh, just that, but this figure, in a way, almost sort of confirms some of the prejudice because, uh, well, you know, some of the uh, well, I mean, it's not necessarily prejudice. It might just be, you know, actually, um, sort of, well, just the way things are. Uh, so, so something that people often mention is that uh, it's the the more privileged who are able to make it to Europe because of the expense. Um, so, and that also means that uh, they will, um, you know, they will probably be more educated compared to the people uh, who are sort of left behind. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, how was this discussed in the Austrian debate? Um, but also, also, what's the difference? So, or maybe you can just go through the results a little bit because you basically have people who are more educated than people back home, but they're still less educated than people in Austria. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So what we found um, is basically a truism, I would say, in uh, migration studies. Mm. And you mentioned it already. So the higher educated a person is, the more mobile he or yeah. she will be. Um, I mean, we know this. This is something that I feel like politicians are not that aware of. Um, yeah, allow me this comment. Um, but of course, we know that this is especially the case in these countries of origin, um, because um, especially in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan, so the main countries of origin uh, of asylum seekers to Austria, um, education very strongly correlates with socioeconomic status, which means that the higher educated a person is, usually the higher um, social status he or she has and the more economic resources. Um, and of course you need resources, as we just heard about mm. these journey costs, uh, in order to make this very long journey to Europe. And as you also mentioned correctly, the less privileged, um, and let's, let's say the poorer um, um, strata of the population, will either be internally displaced or um, will flee to neighboring countries like the Lebanon or Jordan in the case of Syria, but they will not necessarily be able to make it to Europe. Um, so what this is, is basically what we call a sort of 
positive, in inverted commas, uh, self-selection effect of migration, that you have more educated people um, coming to Europe um, and also a higher socioeconomic status. And this also exists, as we also showed in our study, not only for regular migration, labor migration, but also for forced migration. Now, if we compare this um, with sort of the general population in the respective home countries, we can see that the respondents in our study do indeed have a lot higher levels of education. So this is an example, um, people from Syria. In our study, 27% um, of Syrians, both uh, men and women, received a post-secondary education. So basically a university degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, or even higher. Um, this is a very high percentage. And this is compared to only 10% um, of Syrians in the general population uh, who have a post-secondary degree. Um, so, of course, there you already can see this sort of selection effect that takes mm. place. Um, of course, and I think this is also something that you already mentioned very correctly, this says nothing about the quality of education, right? This is only about formal educational degrees that people receive. Um, it doesn't say anything about how degrees from Syria or Iraq, for instance, can be translated into a European context. Um, however, what we also find, and this is something that, that is very interesting, I'm currently working um, on a paper um, with some colleagues of mine on uh, labor market integration of refugees, because this is basically what this plays into, right? So what sort of education do people have and what qualifications so that we can integrate them into the labor market, so that they can participate as soon as possible in the labor market of the host society. And uh, what we can see here um, is that, first of all, very roughly speaking, and these are still preliminary results, I have to say, not reviewed yet, not published yet, <laughs> but in general, there is a very sort of basic match between the labor supply of refugees and the demand in the host country. So if we compare the current job openings um, in Austria to sort of the occupational profiles of the refugees that were surveyed, we find a very rough match, which means that the labor supply that um, refugees and asylum seekers coming um, to Austria, especially since 2015, um, that their labor supply roughly corresponds to labor demand in Austria. And I'll give you one example. Um, for female uh, refugees and asylum seekers in our survey, um, a very high percentage of them used to work in health um, jobs, so related to the health sector, like nursing and so on. And as we know from aging societies in Europe, um, this is definitely a sector in the labor markets of European countries that will be increasingly important in the future and where we're currently already looking for sort of imported labor. Um, so this is sort of good starting positions to say. Yeah, I mean, can I just ask you a bit about that, um, actually, because that's really interesting. And um, I know, so so in my, um, uh, I'm from Sweden, where this is, you know, a similar debate, I can imagine, to the Austrian, because there was also a lot of refugees came 2015, 2016, and probably with similar backgrounds to the people in your study. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think one of the issues, I mean, that, so there's been a big debate about this matching issue, talking about how the sort of low-skilled jobs um, that people with lower levels of education um, could, you know, that would be a good match don't really exist anymore uh, in that sort of labour market. Uh, but also, you know, you mentioned the quality of education. And I think some um, some refugees who've come with 
medical or health related sort of um, qualifications uh, weren't like it wasn't actually so easy to translate those degrees. Um, I don't know if there's a similar uh, debate in Austria or similar problem. Mm, definitely, and I mean, I think one one issue that even comes prior to translating degrees or seeing how you can transfer skills from the home country context into the host country context is, of course, language and mm. the language area. And I think that is definitely an issue um, because, as you mentioned correctly, like medical professions, for instance, um, they are very much communications-based, right? Um, so, of course, they demand a sort of higher level of skills and qualifications, but most jobs that do that also are very, very very, need a high degree of communication, you know, you need to be able to talk to people. Mm. Uh, and this means that you need to um, be able to attain a very high level of, of language proficiency in the language of the host country. Um, and in Austria especially, um, English is not necessarily a lingua franca for the, the great majority of the population. So it really is German that people need to mm. learn. And this is definitely an issue. Um, on the one hand also because we do also have people, especially from Afghanistan, in our sample, who are not, not even literate in their own language. Mm. So to work on literacy first and then on, on providing them with a good um, sort of level of, it, uh, of, of language proficiency in the German language. So that is, I think, one aspect that comes into this. Um, and then, of course, on the other hand, and I think that's also something where the debate might have maybe a, a blind spot, is um, that, of course, for, for people who are have sort of solid education and then you, you provide language courses and they do well and so on, um, but in order to help them really... Um, you know, work in the in the sector or in the position that they used to working in their home country. Um, more effort is probably needed, and I think very often the focus is sort of on quick integration and and uh, bringing them into the labor market at all costs very very soon, but not necessarily what I would call sustainable integration to make sure that as you said the qualification very roughly at least matches the position that people work in um, and that that this can um, be um, as well translated as possible so I think this is also very much an issue uh, because it's not only about getting people into the labor market very soon in the next couple of years but I mean um, we are faced with this problem for a longer period of time I think yeah I would just be interested if uh, I mean I know this is a big issue uh, but you know, if you could just really briefly maybe let us know for people who don't, like me, who don't, I don't really know what the debate is like in Austria. And like I say, what I compare mainly with would be the Swedish debate, which is very, very focused on, you know, perhaps mainly on the people who you mentioned who um, who may be literate or uh, who come from a, you know, whose educational background is a lot lower than, uh, than what the average um, sort of Swedish skill level would be. Um, and there's a debate about whether you need to actually change the labor market to sort of allow for more low-skilled jobs with lower salaries uh, to actually, I suppose that wouldn't necessarily be what you would call sustainable uh, in a way uh, because it doesn't necessarily raise people's skill levels, but it, it, it does it would perhaps get them more rapidly into work. But I don't know if there's like a similar debate in Austria. What, what is like the main... Um, points that, that are debated in terms of, uh, of refugees and skill levels and the labour market in Austria? 
Mm-hmm. Well, in general, I think um, the Austrian labor market has a similar structure um, as the Swedish one, right? So uh, Austria is also a country in which jobs for people with no or very limited um, qualifications are increasingly disappearing. Mm. Um, so, and as I said, I mean, we are faced with this sort of positive selection and people are more educated compared to the general population in their home countries, but that still means that um, let's take a group of Afghan asylum seekers, which is increasing uh, in Austria, we still have 30% of Afghans who have never been in the formal schooling system at all. They never received any kind of education, um, which is also an issue because they uh, never learned how to learn, how to study, right? So it's also sort of an implicit skill that you learn by being schooled and by being in a formal education system. So that is definitely a challenge, right? Still, I mean, if we compare it just as a sort of side note to the, the general population of Afghanistan, it's 80% compared to 30% right. now. Yeah. So still, so I mean, yes, the, the selection effect exists across all nationalities, but it still doesn't mean um, that uh, it will be easy to, to get people into highly qualified jobs, right? So in general, I think on the one hand, the focus is very much, especially for young people, and here it might be an advantage that um, um, the asylum seekers in general are rather young, um, mm. in younger age cohorts. Um, of course, this means that young people, they are available um, on the labor market for the most extended period of time. So here it really makes sense to invest in additional skills training. Uh, so language courses is the one, uh, one aspect. What we have in Austria is a so-called do- vocational training so it's training on the job um, on the one hand like practical training um, craftsmanship um, handyments and so on but also in addition to that um, a formal education so it's both Um, and so these sort of qualification uh, measures really make sense and I mean they make sense for native Austrians young native Austrians as well right so this group I think uh, here investment makes sense uh, for adults or older cohorts, um, you can either try to translate the qualifications they bring with them um, into the host country context. So in this case, you need like conversion processes um, or tailored programs um, that allow them to obtain um, and to recognize qualifications and to translate them. And this is especially true for sectors in the Austrian labor market that need, um, you know, people that are highly qualified, um, mm. like medical professions, for instance, I would say. Whereas on the other hand, of course, the recognition uh, process for medical professions is a very long and hard one, necessarily, of course, because there is a lot on the line um, if people work in medical professions. Uh, on the other hand, of course, would we also have a more sort of unqualified adult refugees. Um, and here I think um, the strategy, as far as I'm informed of, of our sort of public employment service, is to try to bring them into a few of the unskilled uh, labor positions that are still available on the Austrian job market. That's maybe uh, mainly in agriculture, mm. construction. So here it's really about basic language courses and then basic skills training, um, but uh, you know um, extensive qualification me- uh, measures for older age cohorts uh, is not necessarily something that um, the Austrian um, state is currently investing in. Yeah. Okay. That's so these are the pathways in a way that we have. Yeah. yeah. Do you know? I mean, I was going to ask you this last, but before I go on to my last question, I might just uh, ask you this. Um, so, so you did these interviews in 2015 and just um, speaking of, you know, uh, 
the labor market integration do, do you know have you done any follow-up like do you know how these people did uh, or do you do you know anything about you know the people who came in 2015 how they're doing now mm. uh, we're currently doing a follow-up all right <laughs> good <laughs> Uh, you can no, come back then. <laughs> it's not that easy, actually, right? I mean, we asked them for contact details back in 2015. Um, yeah. And since they had only been in the country for a few weeks, usually, many of them already still had their um, cell phone number from the home country, mm. and that changed in the meantime. So it's difficult to establish contact. That's one issue. Then again, um, labor market integration, I think, happens later. It's too early already. Right. So the focus that we are trying to adopt here is the social dimension of integration you know is there interaction with the native uh, Austrian population you know are people joining sports clubs are children in school and so on um, for labor market integration I mean that the, the vast majority of uh, refugees or of asylum seekers who arrived in 2015 um, will first of all uh, be registered as unemployed uh, and you know part of the labor supply um, in, in this country. Um, but also what I have to say is that um, quite a high percentage of those people that we asked or interviewed in 2015 are still in the asylum seeking process. Yes. So they still haven't received an official status. Mm. Um, and of course, then they are not allowed to access the labor market. They're not allowed to work, right. In very limited sectors only. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, uh, so um, the last question I was going to ask, which, uh, or the last topic, uh, I suppose is a bit maybe controversial part of your study, um, mm -hmm. because you've asked people about their values and about how religious they are, and of course this has been a huge debate in, in Germany and in Austria and in Sweden as well. Um, so, um, you know, you ask people... Well, you do mention in your study that it was a bit tricky to do this. Um, you, people might be a bit, you know, they might not tell you exactly what they think or maybe it was a bit of a cultural sort of loss in translation. But anyway, could you just tell us a little bit of what you found there and um, what the implications might be? And, and again, similar to the labour market, um, do you have any comparisons to sort of the values of the average Austrian Right. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I have to start with all the limitations first, <laughs> and then, then I can get to the results. Um, I mean, you already mentioned that it's not an easy topic. Um, it's an often voiced concern that we hear time and again that migrants and refugees, and of course um, the migrants that we are faced with now are to a large part Muslim, um, that Muslims would reject Western values, whatever those are, and this means that they resist integration. And these values mostly concern, as I already said, democracy, rule of law, um, concern sort of the, the clash between the state and religion, or gender equality. Mm. And I always say it's interesting to see how so many Austrians um, found feminism in the wake of this debate, because <laughs> now it's a really important part of Austrian identity, women's rights, which is good, right? I mean, this is also an outcome of the whole debate. Um, but of course, I think you look—you have to look at the nuances. Mm. So first of all, I think that um, ours is a quantitative study, and definitely when you're doing values, research on values, um, qualitative research um, would be 
important as well to to support and substantiate our quantitative findings. Mm. For values especially, I think that values and attitudes, and we know this from our own experience, right, are always very dynamic and it's a process and it's not only one um, little moment in time. Values change constantly and need to be contextualized very much depend on historical context but also on relation um, so you know what is who am I talking to but also what is the relation to other aspects of my personality um, or my sociodemographic characteristics so there are many limitations but that being said um, we did include some questions in that and the first um, that I can briefly mention here would maybe be religion. Uh, what we did is in our study, we took some items, questions from the so-called World Values Survey. Mm. Um, because we wanted to do exactly what you asked about, namely to be able to offer a comparison of the answers that were provided in our survey with other European or Arabic countries. And the World Values Survey, just very briefly, I don't know if um, you know your listeners are aware of this, but this is a sort of a a time series investigation of human beliefs and values. And I think it started in the early 1980s, and since then there have been several waves of investigation uh, conducted in, I think, almost 100 countries worldwide. Mm. And it really captures a huge percentage of the world population, focusing on values, beliefs, motivations, and it tries to, to, to find out this linkage where there's this... Um, yeah, this link between cultural factors and economic development also very much. And the topics that are covered in this World Value Service are huge. So it also covers like social capital, subjective well-being, uh, and so on. And we took some items from there because the data set from the World Value Survey is publicly available. So you can do these um, comparisons. Mm. So one question that we took was we asked respondents on a scale from 1 to 10 to rate their religiosity. So one meaning not religious at all, and ten meaning very, very religious. So obviously this is a very difficult question, right? Yeah. And uh, one respondent said to us, well, how can I put the number to my faith? And I think that's a very yeah. good question. <laughs> I mean, I think both of us would probably be hard put to answer that. Um, but still, uh, and also one finding, and we know that from, from the scale items, is that many respondents chose five. Yeah. Yeah, right. So this is a problem, but still um, we got some findings. First of all, we found that when we aggregate um, our results, we have um, about 11% of people who said that they would define as very religious and 20% who would identify as not religious at all. And this roughly compares to the same values for the Austrian population as captured in the World Values Survey. Okay. Now, of course, this doesn't say anything about, you know, what an Austrian understands as religious, you know, what does religiosity mean for someone who is of the Catholic faith and who lives in Austria. And this might mean that they attend church uh, once a week and that's it. It might, it might have a different quality for someone from Syria, right? And we didn't ask them about their habits, their religious habits. So it doesn't really, I mean, the... the, the the sort of result is limited, I think, but still it's interesting to see that we get almost the same values. Yeah. And what we also found is, and this, this is very consistent with uh, literature, women tend to identify as more religious than men. This is a result that we had in our survey, but also for the Austrian population, and that um, the degree of religiosity declines with increasing educational levels. So the more educated a person is, usually the less religious they would call themselves. Mm. Um, so that's sort of an interesting 
finding here, of course. Um, yes, and a second, I don't know if you're interested in a, in a second um, item that I could also share with you that, would, uh, that was looking at um, gender equality and gender equity. And uh, the, the item, again, that we took from the World Value Survey was um, when jobs are scarce, men should have more right to a job than women. And respondents were asked to either agree or disagree with the statement. Um, so a very basic question, really. Mm. Um, and in our survey, um, it's roughly 50% of both male and female uh, refugees and asylum seekers who would agree with the statement. Um, so compared to the Austrian population, um, we do find a significant difference, I'd say. In Austria, we have 19% of uh, women and 21% of men who agree with the statement. So it's still a fifth of men, for instance, who agree. Um, so it shows us that there is still sort of a um, room to grow, I would say. But of <laughs> course, there's a substantial difference. On the other hand, and this is interesting because it again plays into um, this uh, positive selection effect that I mentioned. When we compare the results from our survey with the aggregated results from Arabic countries, um, the percentage of especially male respondents who would agree with this statement saying that, yes, if there is a scarcity of jobs, I should have more right to a job than a woman, uh, is actually much higher. So it's around 80% um, um, for instance in the Iraqi sample um, compared to only in inverted commas 50% in our sample. Mm. So it again shows us, and I mean this makes sense. Right, because the more educated the person is, um, the less traditional he or she might be when it comes to values and norms, um, and the less religious he or she is. So I think overall the, the, the results are consistent, um, but as I said, especially with, uh, with regards to interpretation of these quantitative findings, um, I would like to substantiate this with more qualitative research as well. To find out more about Judith Kollenberger and to read the article that this podcast was based on, please visit our website, talkandmigration.com, where you can also find information about our previous episodes. But that was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.